and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 121, or 11 squared, seen as I'm helping with homeschooling, as are many of us. Although it's a holiday this week, so one less thing to do. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and the main excitement in the household this week was the arrival of a headlight for walking at night. It's very bright, so not sure if it's visible from the International Space Station, but I did manage to get a long walk in this weekend, although the winds were in excess of 50 miles an hour, or 80 kilometers an hour, and something happened at the top of a hill I've never experienced before. Now, I've worn plenty of baseball-style hats in my time, maybe one of the reasons why I suffer from hair loss, who knows, but those blow off. But never before have I had the wind take a woolly hat or a beanie or a toque or whatever they're called off the top of my head. Not really sure how it happened or if there are any scientific papers about the phenomenon. Thankfully, it wasn't at the top of a cliff or I'd have been very upset. It does have a dairy connection because it was one that I'd bought when I visited Real Sociedad Stadium in San Sebastian in Spain when I was covering the World Cheese Awards there a few years ago. Definitely a very beautiful city, and I have to say, I did one of the best hikes I've ever done there, from Saint-Sébastien to Ondai in France. Incredible scenery and a walk I'd love to do again sometime. Some of you may have heard of the Camino, which is a long-distance pilgrimage walk that goes from the French border to Santiago in Spain. Well, there is also a northern version along the coast called the Camino del Norte that hugs the coastline, and the walk I did is a part of that trail. Anyway, you're not here for walking tales, you're here for interviews. And we have five guests this week, although only three interviews, as two of them, as two of them were with two people. So this week we have conversations with Timothy Brown, CEO of Evolve Biosystems, and Pam Shepard, Managing Director of Manatry. And from Tate and Lyle, we chatted with Jim Carr, PhD, Director of Sweeteners, Global Ingredient Technology, and Abigail Storms, Vice President of Sweetener Innovation. And we also talked about Brexit export issues with Michael Hart, Managing Director of Bridge Cheese. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets, and this week it's with Charlie Highland at Stonex. So let's take a look at the news from the past seven days that you may have missed. Some shareholders at Danone have gone public with a letter calling for changes at the company. Arla's 2020 financials were published and the cooperative said home consumption drove Arla brand growth during the pandemic. And the Sri Lankan government said it wants the country to not have to import milk within four years. Lactily Ingredients launched pro-native native micella casein. First Milk Creamery has hit some sustainability milestones and Synergy Flavors has completed the construction of a school and clean water resource in Madagascar. EcoTensil launched its Aquadot range of plastic-free paperboard cutlery in Europe. The UK dairy cooperative Omsco has announced its chief executive and Group Bell has invested in Big Idea Ventures on the development of alternative proteins. Nestle and ETH Zurich established a new research program to reduce carbon footprints. Kerry Group is set to acquire Spanish company BioSearch Life and Hydrosol launched some improved stabilizing systems for milk beverages. You can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get started this week with allulose. 
Tate & Lyle, a global producer of food and beverage ingredients and solutions, has expanded its Dolce Prima Allulose portfolio with a crystalline form certified as non-GMO project verified. To tell us everything we need to know about allulose are Jim Carr, PhD, Director of Sweeteners Global Ingredient Technology, and Abigail Storms, Vice President of Sweetener Innovation. So I wonder if we could start by, you have the allulose sweetener portfolio. I wonder if you could first let me know what allulose is and where it's sourced from. Sure. So allulose is known as a, a rare sugar. It is found and actually was first discovered in the leaves of wheat back in the 1940s. It's found also in very small quantities in figs and raisins. It's a bulk sweetener, so it's a, an ingredient that brings not just sweetness, but also bulk. And that's important when we talk a little bit more about where and, and how it's used and, and why it's relevant. It is non-cariogenic, so that means it doesn't affect or reduce the pH in the mouth, so it doesn't cause dental caries. It is low in calories, so it's just a tenth of the calories of sugar, which is obviously making it interesting when it comes to the overarching intent of our customers to reduce sugar and calories in their products. It's not metabolized and it has no impact on blood glucose or glycemic index, so obviously making it a very useful tool for people managing and living with diabetes as well, or for those just trying to follow a low sugar or reduced sugar diet. In terms of where we source it from, so our Dolce Prima Allulose, so Dolce Prima is the brand name, Allulose is obviously the ingredient, we actually manufacture it from corn in order to make it cost effective. So we start with corn and we go through a conversion process to then manufacture high purity Allulose, both in syrup form and in crystalline form. And what are its uses in the dairy industry and in dairy alternative products? Allulose is used in really a wide range of food and beverage products, um, uh, dairy and dairy alternatives included. For most of these applications, customers are looking to reduce sugar and calories. And in those applications, of course, the key deliverable is taste and texture. So dairy and dairy alternative products are like the other applications where Allulose has some really unique properties versus other ingredients normally used for sugar and calorie reduction in that it uh, provides a, a really true sugar-like taste as a high uh, sweetness intensity, probably on or about 70% the sweetness of sugar. And it's that real sugar-like taste that allows it to be used across a range of products. Uh, specifically for the products we're talking about today, uh, fermented dairy products like yogurt is a, a key application and it can be used in the the fruit preparations or flavor preparations that might be used to make those or in the product directly in fermentation. Fluid dairy products, products like flavored milks and such, allulose performs really quite well. Again, mostly because as we reduce sugar in those products, we can deliver, a, a, again, a very sugar-like sweetness without any unexpected off-taste. It uh, is very sucrose-like. And then finally, a large application for allulose, because it is a sugar, is in uh, frozen dairy products and dairy alternatives. Allulose is a monosaccharide, it's a one unit sugar, and like other sugars, it can soften or give a creamy texture to frozen dairy products. So if we think of ways of reducing in that last example, 
ways of reducing sugar, we sometimes are challenged with frozen dairy products that don't have the right texture, mouthfeel, melt properties. Allulose delivers against that because of, of its uh, sugar properties. And while not considered as sugar for uh, labeling or added sugars uh, on a nutrition facts panel, it actually performs all the functions of sugar in frozen dairy. Again, scoopability, softness, creaminess, mouthfeel. And are there any challenges in using it at all, like taste or aftertaste? Surprisingly, I'd say uh, as a food formulator, it, it's pretty uh, straightforward to use. If you formulated with bulk sugar syrups or other sugars, maybe dextrose or fructose, for example, allulose doesn't provide any, uh, I'd say, strong surprises. But like with other you know, sugar reformulations or calorie reductions, keeping in mind, uh, you know, getting the right texture, not being too soft, for example, in a frozen dairy product, which you would do, say, with a, a dextrose or fructose, another monosaccharide that might soften texture. You need to rebalance those formulations. But I'd say for the average food formulator, allulose browns, so you know how to manage that with ingredients as you formulate a product, or allulose uh, softens a frozen dairy product, or to get the right sweetness intensity, you know, in your formulation, you'd use the allulose at a particular level and build out the rest of your formulation. So as I've talked with formulators over this past several years since our introduction of the ingredient, I just remind them to keep in mind a bulk sweeteners like uh, other sugars and formulate with allulose in a similar fashion, which means it's fairly straightforward. Uh, you can kind of use it, I'd say, much more easily compared to other sugar replacement ingredients that don't have the bulk properties or the texture properties, or perhaps have a challenge with a taste that's not quite sugar-like. So I don't want to say it's not without some need for considerations, but I'd say very predictable and, and it ticks all the boxes as far as uh, what performance you'd normally want to replace as sugar comes out of a formulation and you're, you know, you're going about that reformulation effort. And what was the reasoning behind developing this new product, considering how many different sweeteners there are already out there? As Tate and Lyle looked at uh, its portfolio of sugar reduction and calorie reduction ingredients, really for us, say, holy grail was to be able to replace some of those uh, properties of sugar that are a bit elusive for, say, some of the tools we had in the toolbox. And we have natural sweeteners, high potency sweeteners and other ingredients that, you know, can replace a bulk like our fiber line, et cetera. But when you look at holistically at sugar, not surprisingly, when you go application by application, there's things about sugar or sucrose in formulations that uh, really are essential to give a real sugar-like taste. Some of those are nuanced mouthfeel properties. Some are, you know, the bulk properties, just physically taking out sugar. You change food products. And so as we look at different possibilities, really our focus had turned to what might be the best way of replacing sugar was perhaps with a different sugar that just was essentially non-caloric or not considered sugar, you know, metabolically. So this was a perfect fit, if you will, in a toolbox that already had ingredients that arguably had high sweetness and could uh, replace some of the, say, sweet properties of sugar. But when you look at allulose, I think what you arrive to the table with is uh, so many of those other characteristics that I mentioned, physical properties like freezing point, water activity, uh, ability to reduce water activity in foods for stability and textural properties, the properties of sugar like browning or sugar like sweetness. Uh, allulose has a very strong upfront sweetness. It's very much sucrose-like. So when someone tastes something, if you have a sweetener that kind of comes on a little bit late in the time profile or perhaps lingers with its sweetness, it's not something that a consumer would associate with sucrose, real sugar-like taste. And I'd say allulose was what we were looking for to be able to add to formulations 
avoid calories and sugar, and at the same time, bring some of those other sugar-like properties that were, I would say, arguably were missing from the toolbox and made formulation so much more difficult. And could you run through what the other products are that you have in the range and what the differences are between them, how they would be used differently? Sure. As we conduct uh, sugar and calorie reduction efforts, what we really need in our portfolio and, and what I think we have in the toolbox are ingredients that, say, can replace the bulk properties of, of sugar, you know, correct texture, correct uh, mouthfeel characteristics, provide sweetness, as we talked about before, and give all the properties, say, that we might need to give someone that something that really tastes like a gold standard or, you know, a really indulgent product. So we have uh, high potency sweeteners. We have sucralose and uh, other uh, ingredients like our natural high potency sweeteners, like product line of, of stevia products covering a wide range of performance delivery, uh, monk fruit uh, extracts, again, products in that range for sweetness, fructose, which has a very high sweetness, which also can be used to replace sugar and deliver uh, sugar-like sweetness. So a range of, say, products for sweetness. We have texture products, so a full range of texturizing ingredients uh, that would be our uh, starch line. So as we go into sauces and things of that nature, we want to bring back the texture of sweetness and sugar and the flow uh, behavior. That's an important part of our portfolio. And finally, fiber ingredients, which again, deliver against that calorie reduction and bring textural properties. So when we take out the bulk of sugar that's normally in the in the starting product that we're trying to reformulate and bring the added benefit of the, the enrichment aspects of having added fiber to products. So when you think about the taste properties, the sweetness, the textural properties and the physical behavior, that broad range of sweetener products, texture ingredients, and our, our fiber portfolio, I think brings to bear most of the ingredients needed to conduct a, a successful reformulation cost-effectively and uh, deliver, a, you know, say a nutritionally superior product with all the taste and texture we might expect. What's consumer awareness like of allulose? And is it something that on a label would just appear as allulose? And, and what would the consumers think about it? That's obviously a great question on any ingredient that's new to consumers. And as you can imagine, awareness to the typical consumer is very low, but we're working to increase that awareness and also to educate consumers on exactly the benefits of what Allulose brings in the end products that they buy for those label readers who are concerned, obviously, around what's on the ingredient list and, and how does that impact on the nutrition facts panel. As Jim referenced earlier, Adilose doesn't label as a sugar or an added sugar. So that's helpful in terms of consumers really understanding what's in, in the product and, and how it would impact on, on their health and, and making healthier choices. In terms of what you see on the ingredient list, it labels simply as Adilose. But again, to your point, with awareness being low, it's really our role in partnership with brands launching with products that contain Adilose to really build that awareness as well as an understanding of the benefits that Adilose brings as an ingredient in the products that consumers try. And when consumers learn about Adilose, it almost sounds too good to be true. And uh, when you explain it to them, when they actually taste products that have been formulated with Adilose, there's definitely a, a belief that this is real because to Jim's point earlier in terms of those formulation benefits and the physical attributes that it has, it really does deliver on that full sugar experience, but obviously without all the calories and the sugar on a label associated with it. So 
in short, low awareness, but we're working to increase that awareness and educate consumers on the benefits that it brings. I suppose in some ways as well, the fact that it sounds like in some respects cellulose and it has that O sending, which people may associate with sucrose, glucose, there's there's a starting point there, I guess. There is. But again, it's separating it from those oses, which are, you know, sugars in general, and making sure that people understand that this isn't like a, a normal sugar. It's not a traditional sugar in how you think about it, but it has those benefits. But at the same time, you still get that sugar-like experience. So it's a real balance in terms of how you talk about it as an ingredient, because I believe it will open up a whole world of possibilities in end products and help consumers to make healthier choices. And of course, this is one part of an entire spectrum of options in terms of sweetening products. Are consumers leaning towards natural at the moment over artificial or is that still is there still a balance? There's a real balance. I mean, you have to take it even a step back to the previous question that you asked around consumer awareness. And if you, again, look at sort of general population and consumers' understanding of all the different sweeteners, Clearly, you know, awareness is is higher, but awareness already ranges from, you know, relatively high around ingredients such as aspartame to lower when it gets to stevia and even lower when you talk to stevial glycosides, which is obviously the same thing as stevia, but just a different label and a different ingredient name. So I would say there is a role for really all of these sweeteners in terms of what they bring. And I would say it's a balance of what consumers are looking for and obviously how brands position themselves and what they're looking for in terms of the claims that a brand owner is wanting to make. And then what's the taste profile and the sweetness delivered by those different sweeteners, again, to deliver the best tasting formula to the desired level of sugar reduction, taking into account all the different factors that need to be considered when a food or beverage manufacturer is formulating. So everything from regulatory to label to taste profile to level of sugar reduction required. It's it's really a toolbox of options that manufacturers are looking for to be able to create the solution that they are creating for their target consumer. So it's a balance. And what would the advantage be to a company using allulose instead of other sweeteners? It brings an upfront sweetness. People taste a product that's been sugar reduced that getting that real early sweetness when you first put it in your mouth is something that allulose delivers and there's no delay of, that we might see to a certain extent with certain high potency sweeteners. So it brings that and and it brings no off taste. It arguably is really sugar-like in its properties in terms of nothing kind of unexpected, if you will, say versus maybe some other uh, sweetener alternatives that are on the market. Probably the most important point to make, we talk about with our customers about you know the advantages of allulose, but really the complementarity, not thinking as much as a competitive alternative, but when you think about allulose, how it can improve the overall performance of stevia or other, other sweetener possibilities or ingredients, it really becomes something that adds to the toolbox. So, so stevias, especially the high performance stevias that are now available, really give high sweetness and clean sweetness. So if you think about that and adding allulose plus stevia, we do are doing a lot of formulation with that combination. Even with the other ingredients outside of our range of sugar alcohols and other, uh, allulose can help those ingredients perform better. And 
you know, add browning where sugar alcohol might not have it or, you know, be used in combination to reduce what might be a cooling effect of a, of a polyol or a, a perhaps a, a bit of a taste challenge on a, a lower performance a stevia. So when you think of, of allulose's advantages, it's not, I would say, not just an, uh, an alternative replacement, but really something now that brings or elevates the whole toolbox to be much higher performance. And uh, more often than not, uh, when we're helping customers formulate, uh, we're proposing a range of solutions that together, you know, deliver sugar-like performance. And again, we feel that allulose is that part of the portfolio that really now is allowing us to do so, so much of a better job in getting products that are really from a taste and texture performance, something that hasn't been possible before. Now, it's been about six weeks since the UK left the EU, and the country still seems to be divided about it. In those first six weeks, there have been a few issues, and that's certainly true of the dairy industry. Throw in the pandemic, and it's created more than a few headaches. To tell us about some of the issues and what can be done is the managing director of UK company Bridge Cheese, and that is Michael Hart. Even though we've not really known what was going on necessarily, we've been dealing with Brexit for a few years now, and then all of a sudden the pandemic comes along. I wonder if you could tell me how that's affected business? Um, well, I suppose the pandemic itself has been a challenging time because you look at it first of all, and you look at the challenge around staff, staff welfare. And when you're running a production environment, it's important that you're trying to create an environment where staff are safe and you're creating a COVID safe environment, when you then layer it over with lockdown and impact that lockdown has on certain elements of the food service market, it's a challenge that I suppose for us as a business is all about the flexibility and responsiveness and just dealing with the challenge as it lay ahead. And I suppose thankfully for us as a business, we were able to respond to customer needs in a safe way, but also in a fast way. And I think that served as well as a business. And do you think that that's sort of combined with Brexit has made one of those perfect storms, as they seem to call them? Combining it then with Brexit, and I suppose it certainly has presented a challenge. I think, you know, for us as a business, we couldn't wait until Christmas Eve to make our purchasing decisions. So we looked at, you know, when we looked at Brexit and looked at it in November time, early December time, we had to make our decisions then as a business and work with our customers and work with our suppliers to have contingency plans in place. And I suppose the approach that we took was a worst case scenario where there was going to be a no deal Brexit and that we then had to make sure we had orders in place, stock built up, and we were able to meet customer needs and customer demand. I suppose then we certainly welcomed the free trade deal that was announced at the end of December on Christmas Eve. But I suppose one of the big challenges that there was, it took effect from the 1st of January on exports. And it didn't really give people meant much time to digest what was required. And I suppose that's when then a lot of the challenges presented from a Brexit point of view. And then lockdown was announced. And again, that certainly had an element of impacting demand at a traditionally quiet time of the year as well. So certainly between Brexit and COVID, it certainly has presented a challenge in the last couple of months. Do you think that we're starting to see maybe light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic? And what are the challenges that the Brexit situation is bringing? And is that going to improve? 
Well, certainly you're looking at each element and you look at it from a COVID point of view and with what is happening with the vaccination, I suppose in the media, even today about schools opening back up again, it is positive. And you look at it and say, well, please God, we're through the worst of it and better days are ahead of us and hopefully they're around the corner. From a Brexit point of view, you look at it and say, as businesses, we are now all getting used to trading in a Brexit environment. Certainly in my lifetime, trading within the EU was frictionless. Now we're all adjusting to, and certainly when you're dealing with dairy products, you're looking at veterinary inspections, you're looking at certificate of origins, commercial invoices, customs clearances. So certainly for small to medium-sized businesses with, I suppose, limited resources, it's a challenge to get our head around and then working to understand what is it that is actually required, working with hauliers to try and get product exported. I hopefully, with time, we are hopeful that that will become a lot clearer and hopefully a lot easier. And how much business do you do with Europe and how important is it to your business? When you look at it from a dairy industry point of view, there is over 60 million people in the UK, Jim, and ultimately liquid milk gets first call. And then when you take the rest of the milk pool, the UK is reliant on milk imports of some form, whether it's cheese, butter, powder, to meet UK demand. So, you know, trading with Europe and our closest neighbours is important in terms of us buying product, but also us selling product. And certainly what we've seen and customers and consumers, they do want quality. They do want products that they go on holiday and they see a particular type of cheese and they want to come back to the UK market and have that when they go to the supermarket as well. And certainly the quality of food available in the UK is fantastic, but we now need to be able to import that and format that at a competitive and supply chain efficient manner. And what kind of issues have you been encountering with the new regulations and Brexit? The first one is one of the things is we now have to, as I said, it touched on earlier, Jim, is health certificates, certificate of origins, stamped commercial invoices. So prior to December, you'd be able to receive an order from a customer and you could have that product within a couple of days to the customer anywhere within Ireland, Northern Europe. Now we have to plan for getting the documentation ready. We have to plan and get vets to to site to inspect product. So particularly on short shelf life product, which a lot of what the products we do, it's eating into shelf life and extending the supply chain in terms of time. And then overlaid with that is the additional cost that comes with the documentation required. Is there a danger, do you think, that some importers of British products will just say it's not really worth all of the hassle? I hope not. Certainly for me and what I see is that British food has got a tremendous reputation for quality in export markets. So I don't see that changing. I think the challenge for us in the food industry is to be able to serve our customers in an efficient manner. And that is the challenge that we are facing since the 1st of January. 
is the dairy industry being affected more adversely than other products or is it other products are having the same issue as well dairy is animal origin product so you have got veterinary inspections i would say that's probably within the dairy industry another factor that is making life that bit more difficult in terms of getting vets to size the costs associated with that to do inspections and hopefully you know one of the things we're hoping for is that maybe this can be done in a more efficient way so that we can continue to meet some of the great export opportunities that do exist for British food. Is this something that's affecting food coming into the country as much as it is food like you with you exporting? At the moment, not. I suppose we are waiting, Jim, with bated breath upon what's going to happen post early April when custom checks are now going to be done on imports into the UK. It is well publicised the challenges that there have been since January on exporting. And I'm just hopeful that we don't see those challenges on imports come April. We are hopeful, and I suppose one of the things that we are glad of is that there has been this grace period of three months to allow importers the time to digest the regulations and time to understand what is required. So I'm hopeful that April we will see minimal disruption on imports. Quite a lot's been made of what's been going on with Ireland and the situation there. Um, yeah. Is that, how do you see that panning out? What you have is Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Southern Ireland is part of the EU. And then between the both, there's a land border, which is politically sensitive. The way we look at it is that is presenting challenges. And we are hopeful that those challenges are recognised on both sides and hopefully a better way of working identified because it is well publicised that Northern Ireland is, from a food point of view, difficult to export into at the moment. Do you think that there was an element of not really knowing what was going to happen. So let's just see what does happen and see what the issues are and then we'll fix them. Or is that maybe a bit naive? I hope not, because I suppose certainly how we see it at the moment in Britain, small to medium sized businesses are the backbone of the British economy. And when you're running a small to medium sized business, these challenges are difficult to be able to respond to them. One of the frustrations we have as a business is that the veterinary inspection for one pallet of cheese versus the veterinary inspection cost for one container of the same cheese are exactly the same. So you're trying to absorb those costs over a pallet, whereas larger businesses can absorb over a bigger volume. So certainly smaller to medium sized businesses are at a disadvantage. And we hope that those challenges can be addressed and looked at and a better way of working identified. What kind of things can the government do to help? And is it actually doing anything at the moment? At least, I would say, in the last couple of weeks, we're hopeful of the fact that there is a recognition that there are challenges at a government level. So we are very hopeful that they are being recognised. It's not in any way an easy challenge to resolve, but certainly it requires a bit of dialogue and maybe a fresh pair of eyes to look at the current arrangement and for both sides to come forward and say, okay, let's try and make this work in a better way. What the solution is, it's a difficult one. We acknowledge that. 
but in the short term to medium term, it needs to be acknowledged and looked at. And hopefully at a political level, it looked at in a quick way. Every business out there in the last 12 months has learned to be adaptive and responsive. And certainly we're very hopeful of the future in terms of food, but it's not without its challenges. What do you think the long-term solutions are, or is it just a case of really seeing what the government can come up with? The quality of food produced in the UK, the quality of food produced in the EU is world-class. So, and some of the discussions that we would be taking forward is, why is it that then we have to inspect every single pallet that we're supplying a customer, where we know where the origin of the cheese is, we know the quality standards of that factory. So why do we look at each shipment in isolation where maybe a more holistic view can be taken, which will then hopefully minimise the costs, but also then make the lead times a bit more, bring them back into where we were prior to December. You know, the quality and reputation for British food in export markets is second to none. And it's important and imperative that we continue to maximise those advantages and those opportunities and continue to grow British dairy and employment of people within British dairy. Now we're talking about US microbiome company Evolve Biosystems, which recently announced it had completed a $55 million Series D round of funding led by Cargill and Manatree, an investment firm committed to improving human health. The new capital will be used to help the company continue commercializing a next generation of probiotic capable of addressing a widespread deficiency in the infant gut microbiome. And we had a conversation with Timothy Brown, CEO of Evolve Biosystems, and Pam Shepard, Managing Director of Manatree. All right, so could you both give me a little bit of background on the companies? Let me um, jump in first and then hand it over to Pam. So Evolve Biosystems was a spin out from uh, University of California, Davis Foods for Health Institute, where um, a number of faculty were studying the interaction between human breast milk and the infant gut microbiome. We spun out going on 10 years ago, and uh, but really um, spun things up a few years ago as David Kyle started seeking external funding. We've done now five rounds of external funding culminating in our Series D that we announced uh, very recently, led by Cargill and Manatree. So um, we've been pioneering the understanding of the infant gut and how the composition and the biochemistry of the infant gut help train the immune system for babies during the first six months of life. Yeah, so, you know, Manatree is very excited to have partnered with Evolve. And the core mission of Manatree is to improve human health. That is our investment thesis. Manatree currently has $235 million um, in assets under management. We've made six investments to date. All of the companies that we invest in, we believe, make a difference in the lives of others. Uh, uniquely, we are based in Vail, Colorado. I always like to work that in there. And our and we make our investments the, the same way we live our lives, in a way that promotes and improves the health and well-being of others. In the press release that came out on Evolve, there's mention of a widespread deficiency, and it's even labeled as a health crisis. I wonder if you could go sure. through what the issue actually is. We and our founders together have discovered that there is a very crucial microbe that's important in the early days of the infant's life in setting up the biochemistry 
and uh, suppressing pathogens in the gut, suppressing inflammation in the gut that would otherwise disrupt both the baby's health and comfort, but more importantly, the baby's long-term immune programming. And so we just published a few weeks ago a paper in Scientific Reports that outlines what's increasingly being called newborn gut deficiency, and that is the absence of this bacterium in the gut, and in its absence, the sort of high abundance of pathogens that cause enteric inflammation or gut inflammation and disrupt immune system programming. So we've determined and published now in that paper that's it's a Nature Family Journal scientific reports uh, that more than nine out of 10 babies suffer from this uh, newborn gut deficiency and are probably therefore disrupted in their lifelong immune uh, health trajectory. And so why is um, B. infantis so critical in this? Well, B. infantis is, is a really unique microbe. It actually uh, has a symbiosis with human milk. It's, there's a very large fraction of milk that only B. infantis can digest. And it's about 15% of human milk are these complex carbohydrates called oligosaccharides. Or we shorten that to human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. And so 15% of the nutrients in breast milk are HMOs. That's actually more abundant than the protein in breast milk. And only B. infantis is capable of breaking it down. So, so that was sort of the original enigma uh, that our founders were trying to figure out why is this fraction of breast milk undigestible by the baby? And they determined that B. infantis played this incredible role in breaking those nutrients down and in doing so, turning them not only into nutrients that the baby can use, like lactate and acetate, B vitamins and other important metabolites, but also dropping the pH of the gut to suppress pathogens. We've actually discovered that B. infantis drops the pH of the gut by a full log unit up to maybe a log unit and a half. So that's you know, more than 10 times more acidic than the adult gut. And that acidity suppresses pathogens, which otherwise would degrade the protective mucin layer in the gut and cause inflammation in the baby gut. And that inflammation manifests actually as colic. Uh, and so, you know, colicky babies are kind of a, they're crying out for help because of a, a, a gut inflammation. But more importantly, we think long-term it links to immune system programming. If we're just discovering this now, I wonder what the link is in terms of how babies have managed to be okay for so long, or is this just something that will improve infant health? Well, actually, we used to have it. So as I said, there's this incredible symbiosis with human milk. And in fact, we believe that humans and this bacteria evolved together. So human breast milk actually has much higher levels of this, of these carbo uh, carbohydrates, of these oligosaccharides than even the other great apes. So, and we actually, looking at papers from about 100 years ago, either microscopically or by biochemistry, can see that Western babies have this bacterium. As we work with the Gates Foundation, we've learned that we've learned that babies in healthy rural parts of the world still have this bacterium. The problem is that the combined use of C-section birth and antibiotics over the last 50 years have knocked it out of our population. And so essentially moms today don't have it to pass on to their babies. So it's really a phenomenon in the developed world of the past 50 to 60 years that this bacteria is missing. Could you tell me what the Avivo product sure. is? So Avivo is our brand name product that is a 
an activated, so that's a proprietary process by which we activate key genes in the bacteria. It's an activated B. infantis. It's a, it's a strain that we isolated from a healthy infant, I guess one of the few that still had it, and developed that, selected it from other strains because of its superiority in metabolizing milk oligosaccharides. And then we commercially developed that product and tested it in clinic uh, with very, very good results, which have been published. Uh, so it's an activated B infantis. It comes in two forms. One is a powder, which we sell to consumers via our website, and that's a uh, mixed with breast milk on a daily basis and fed via a dropper to the baby. And we also have a form that's used in hospitals. It's a suspension of the bacteria in medium chain triglyceride oil, MCT oil, and that's fed to babies through a feeding tube. So those are the two forms of Avivo. Actually, We've had millions of feedings since our launch a couple of years ago. Is it too early to say what the benefits of this product are long-term? We're studying that. So we don't have all the data. I mean, we can look sort of retroactively at what's happened to public health since we've lost B. infantis in the population. And that is a five-fold increases in autoimmune and allergic conditions like food allergies and atopy or atopic dermatitis, asthma, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, type 1 diabetes. So all of these things have increased four to five-fold in the period that B. infantis has been progressively lost in our population. And now as we're tracking its loss in the developing world and in Asia, we're seeing these same increases in autoimmune and allergic conditions. So we are working right now on proving that by restoring B. infantis, we do avoid these conditions. So Johnson & Johnson, who's one of our investors, has undertaken a study uh, that's currently enrolling in Finland that's looking at babies who are at risk for atopic dermatitis and seeing whether it's effective in, in preventing the onset of atopic dermatitis. We're very soon hopeful to uh, announce another very large study related to immune and autoallergic conditions. So we're, we're learning this right now. Um, we're also simultaneously working in Asia with the Gates Foundation on the use of Vivo in babies with malnutrition. We've already executed one study that was a pilot, just a pilot study, but had very encouraging results and show that um, Vivo was helpful in babies with severe acute malnutrition. And we're in close discussions about what the next steps are there. So we're shedding more and more light. We have a very active, ambitious clinical program and we'll shed more and more light on the benefit of restoring it. But the evidence we've seen so far is, is really encouraging. And I guess one of the things that we're learning with the pandemic, and I know it's not really relevant to this, but I think people are starting to become a bit more aware of proactive health and immunity, and people are starting to actively seek out products that can help with that. So maybe it's uh, all part of that same, that holistic approach to yeah. health. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's very interesting that you say that. We've had some discussions internally about this recently, how people have just sort of lumped probiotics together this, as this monolithic thing. And, you know, these are very complex organisms. And, you know, we're quite often said, well, I've thought about taking a, people will say, I've thought about taking a probiotic or getting a probiotic for my baby without realizing that, you know, these are bacteria with thousands of genes in them. And just as a contrast, the coronavirus has 15 genes. That's all. 
And in 15 genes, we already recognize that there are variants that cause those different strains of that, the different variants of, of coronavirus to be to behave very differently. Imagine um, our bacteria has almost 2,500 genes. And imagine what the what variety even among these subspecies of B. infanis can be. We've already published that our strain of B. infanis is much more effective than other commercial strains in metabolizing human milk oligosaccharides. And so I think we'll get to a place where there's better appreciation, better sophistication about these microbes and that they're not just interchangeable, that they're very, they're unique and they play a very specific role. And it really wasn't that long ago when we were of the opinion or doctors were of the opinion that anything to do with bacteria in the body was a bad thing and should be eradicated. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, this is the reason I, I moved from the infant nutrition world into working on the microbiome specifically because of how fascinating the gut microbiome is. And there, there are probably more microbes in our gut than there are our own cells, maybe as much as a factor of 10. I believed it would be the, the next frontier in medicine. I think we're learning that, that the interaction between those microbes in our gut and our health is in, intimately intertwined, and, and in the infant gut, even more so. And that's why we think we're really on the, on the brink of some important, really important public health discoveries. And turning back to Pam at Manatree at this point, just in terms of the company, what was it about Evolve? that made you want to invest in this and how does it fit in with the rest of your portfolio of investments in that area? This investment is at the very core of our mission at Manatree, which is to improve human health and nutrition. We categorize our investment um, in Evolve as precision nutrition and also can be considered food as medicine because this is it is a food. And so, you know, we're very proud to, to partner with innovators like Tim and his entire team you know, they're really at this forefront of food and biotechnology. And when we think about our portfolio, you know, our portfolio spans from healthy food production all the way to the consumer. And uh, areas we're interested in are companies like Vital Farms, and, and which is uh, pasture-raised eggs, or Verde Farms, which is grass-fed beef. You know, microtechnology and, and, and Nutriati are also food technologies, but Evolve is different in that when you think about the impact, the social impact of Evolve, it's, it's a very special investment. Not only do we think it'll be a great return for our investors, but you know the ultimate success of Evolve um, has just an incredible social impact for infants as far as uh, you know, reducing autoimmune disorder, atopic, the atopic march, and all these issues that have appeared in our babies. And I guess in terms of the kind of companies that you would be looking at and investing in, have you seen massive growth in the number of companies that you're able to look at? Because you, you go back 10, 15 years and plant-based wasn't really a big thing. And it, it really, all of this area of science helping to feed and to improve health, it really seems to have taken off in the last few years even. Oh, without a doubt, this notion of food as medicine and precision nutrition. And uh, in the case of Evolve, where you really have true science-backed, clinically proven products, it's opening up a, a very interesting investing channel. As far as Evolve's concerned, what does this investment mean? First of all, with, um, I want to acknowledge the capability that Pam and Ellie and the Manatree team bring. And then the other key investor in this round was Cargill, 
incredible global scale, great sophistication around um, food and food ingredients. And so, you know, when you look at your investors, first of all, you you want to know that they're bringing more to the table than than money. And we really scored in that respect in this investment round, as we have in previous ones as well. We're really proud of our, our set of investors. From a financial standpoint, it allows us to continue our very ambitious clinical program and understand better um, how much benefit this product brings to babies and their ultimate life trajectory. So I mentioned the study we did with UC Davis in the local community. We've done a series of studies at King's College London, which should be reporting out in the next uh, year or so. We've done the studies in Bangladesh on babies with malnutrition. We have a study going in Finland that I mentioned that Johnson Johnson is sponsoring. But we also have studies in the NICU, in the neonatal intensive care units. Our product is used as standard of care in about 40 hospitals around the U.S., and the results there are really encouraging. Vivo has been used in preterm babies, and we actually have a paper coming out this week in collaboration with uh, Kaiser Permanente. And so we're, we're seeing, you know, really great benefits in these early babies, early premature babies. And, and so clinical work is going to be one of the focuses of continued focus of our spend building awareness and making sure that moms and doctors and dads and, you know, lactation consultants and the whole allied health community is aware of, of Avivo and the benefits it brings to babies. And then scaling up to uh, launch overseas. Horizons Ventures from Hong Kong is one of our key investors, and we've long been eyeing the uh, Asian market and, and entering there. We also have some um, money focused on continued product development. So, really across the R&D and commercial spectrum, we now have um, much greater latitude in being able to pursue quite an ambitious plan. I forgot to ask as well, how long do infants need to take the product in order for its efficacy to be um, realized? Nature gives us a hint to that in that breast milk is nutritionally complete through six months of life. Uh, so we think this bacteria would have dominated the gut of infants for that period of time. So it's it, that's generally the period we recommend as long as mom's breastfeeding and up to six months. We think it has a really, really crucial benefit early on. And, and so the, we think the first 100 days are the most important. So parents shouldn't delay, doctors shouldn't delay in administering it. Uh, the earlier, the better. We In our clinical studies, we fed it to babies at seven days old. And that, we think, creates a, the protective environment as early as possible. But from then through six months is the general recommendation. All right. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, we're, we're, we're just thrilled to be part of a special story. So we, we can't wait to see what the future holds. Jim, I would uh, thank you for your time. And, and I would just reiterate that, you know, there really is an issue in the babies of the developed world. You know, the paper that we came out with a few weeks ago in Scientific Reports shows that these babies have a really uh, concerning level, not only of pathogenic bacteria, but actually antibiotic resistant bacteria in their gut. You know, who, who would have believed that, you know, healthy babies coming out of the hospital are carriers of dozens of strains of antibiotic resistant bacteria, but indeed, indeed they are. And, and so I think we've got an issue we need to address and really I guess I would appeal to the healthcare community to really pay attention to the infant gut and, and realize the importance it plays in the baby's long-term health.
Now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets, and this week it's Charlie Highland over at Stonex. Hi, Jim. So the dairy markets in the last uh, week and, and weeks actually has been a bit, a bit difficult for a lot of people to get their, their heads around for various reasons. We, we've had quite mixed uh, news out there. I mean, if, if we look at the supply side, there's certainly been a, a concern with uh, with poor milk in the two biggest milk producing regions in, in Europe and in France and Germany, which are which are both down around 2% year on year. But at the same time, we've had, uh, you know, reasonably strong milk uh, based on the latest statistics coming from the the rest of the top 10 producers in Europe, uh, such as Ireland, Poland, um, even the likes of Italy and, and Spain to a lesser extent, um, have all seen positive uh, milk collections, which to date has been kind of outweighing what we've been losing in France and Germany. Um, and I think the outlook for, for most of the season is is somewhat similar. Most people consider France and Germany will still be under pressure, but the the rest of the regions should should compensate. Um, so no real you know worry in terms of the milk collection side overall when you look at it in, in, in total, because ultimately we're seeing higher milk prices, or we should start seeing higher milk prices come true towards the middle of the year, um, as the commodity prices have been very strong. Um, now, there has been a, a bigger challenge, I think, on the feed side when you look at there's been a big increase in feed prices, which has been offsetting um, any potential improvements in milk prices we're going to see. But still, um, margins don't look like they'll be particularly bad this year. So all in all, a pretty neutral outlook for, for milk collections. I mean, if we look at the uh, you know the other side of the equation, the demand side, that, that's been the piece, I think, which has really been um, surprising overall over the last about six months, really, um, and it continues to be. I mean, we've just had a, a, a GDT auction this week, which was up again 3%, um, again, outperforming what the market expected it to do. And and this week in particular, it was, it was maybe somewhat surprising because over the last number of auctions, China has been the real dominant force. Um, the, the dominant percentage of the buying has been coming from China. And this week, uh, you know, there should have been less uh, Chinese demand, uh, or at least there is an expectation that there would have been due to the fact that a lot of people have been on holidays for Chinese New Year. But they were, they were still in the market and still buying quite considerable percentages. Um, ad- admittedly, it was lower than, than what they had been over the last few auctions. But uh, what you know, they've what China kind of reduced in terms of their demand uh, was was taken up by Southeast Asia in general. So in general, the demand side has been has been good and continues to be better than a lot of people have expected. And the net result of that is that prices have increased. I mean, and we're just looking at the quotations uh, published this morning for for European prices, and we see uh, prices are up again across the board, and 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 this makes it, uh, I guess. You know, since the start of the year, butter prices have increased by about nine and a half percent. Currently, you know, up above thirty six hundred in in the spot. And if you look at the futures prices, that's forecasting the continued improvement in prices there over the coming uh, weeks and months. And a similar story in skim milk powder. So far this year, it looks like prices have been up um, about eight and a half percent. So again, uh, pointing to uh, positive signs in terms of prices in general. Um, demand continues to be positive, even though we're going through kind of lockdowns in, in many parts of the world. Um, we still seem to be, uh, you know, demanding for di- or looking for a strong demand for dairy products. Thanks a lot, Charlie. We'll hear from you again soon. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. 
And that does it for another show, and it means I've got to start on the next one. But it's always a pleasure because I really do enjoy talking to people, and who knows, maybe in 2021 there will be an opportunity or two to meet people face-to-face again. I haven't got my envelope with an invite for a vaccination yet, hopefully in the next month or so. It's going to feel a bit weird as we eventually emerge from all of this. I wonder how many people will still wear masks or be a little wary of crowds. I suspect quite a lot, especially at first. I'm sure I'll be washing my hands more and carrying sanitizer. I think everyone's going to feel a bit strange at first going on a plane or walking down a crowded street or going to a sports event. Although the last one here in Scotland, I've been to some games where the 22 players have outnumbered the crowd, so maybe not much change there. Having said that, I've also played concerts where we almost outnumbered the audience as well. But if one person enjoys it, it's worth it, as we tried to tell ourselves, in between all the spinal tap moments. Alright, before I start telling you strange concert stories, I'll leave it there and hope that wherever in the world you may be, that you have a great week, stay safe, take care, and, as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>